ночной шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И при виде их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Hello and welcome to the SRB podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture, and history. As always, I'm your host, Sean Guillory. The SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian and East European Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. You can help support the podcast by going to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash Sean's Russia blog, or the podcast website, seansrussiablog.org, and click on the Patreon donate button and join the table of ranks. What does it take for someone to become a political activist in Russia? And what does a political activist mean? This week's podcast explores the place of Russian LGBTQ and new left activists within Russia's broader political opposition movement. How do they navigate the movement's many political tendencies? And what is their broader struggle for visibility and legitimacy in Russian society? How do Russian LGBTQ and new left activists maintain their political orientations while leaving space for solidarity across the political divide? Here's Jessica Mason with some insight. Jessica Mason is a Mellon ACLS public fellow and federal policy analyst at the National Partnership for Women and Families, and a fellow in the Department of Anthropology at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Her research and policy work address vulnerable social groups seeking greater legal protections and social recognition, particularly in relation to gender, sexuality, and national belonging in Russia and the United States. She's the author of Wake Up Russia, Political Activism and the Reanimation of Agency, published in the October 2016 issue of Anthropology Today. Here's Jessica Mason. So your research focuses on LGBTQ and radical left activists in Russia. So I thought we'd start by having you talk a bit about what are some of the big questions that uh, you looked at, looked to answer in your research? Yeah, so this gets a little bit into how my uh, dissertation research project developed in the first place. So I've been interested in um, feminist activism and women's activism for a long time. And as I was, uh, you know, doing my language training, visiting Russia, um, I had sort of become interested in how gender politics works out in, in Russia. Um, and there's a, a fair amount of research about this in, in the post-Soviet world more generally, about how, you know, gender issues and what's going on with family life are very frequently these real targets of attention in periods of great change that people sort of become anxious about, you know, what's happening to families, what's happening to the birth rate. So people get very interested in these things, both um, in, in everyday discourse, everyday conversations and um, at the political level. And uh, when I had visited Russia, um, I'd spent some time in Moscow um, in 20, 2009 and, and, and I spent the summer there in 2010. And I had noticed these um, public service announcement type billboards advertising family life. Um, and so um, people who were in Moscow in, in 2010 probably saw these as sort of these like big posters of um, Matryoshki um, talking about the, the family um, being the uh, uh, origin of the nation and, and these kinds of things. <laughs> this sort of really caught my attention. And so I had initially planned to uh, do my research on women's activism around abortion, um, which in the last several years 
leading up to that um, had sort of become organized around uh, along similar lines as it is in the United States. So there were um, groups of activists calling themselves uh, pro-choice and pro-life, um, even even in Russian, <laughs> pro-life was <laughs> being used. And so that, that also was, was very interesting to me, sort of the question of like, how is this um, not just this issue, but also this like way of organizing the movement um, seeming to be globalized in, in some kind of way. So that was kind of my plan as I was applying for research funding in um, early 20, uh, let me see, 2011, there we go. And so I had put out all my, uh, my research grant applications in 2011 and I'd you know, gotten some money and I was you know, applying for visa and sort of setting up all the logistics. And then um, in late 2011, of course, there were these suddenly massive protests around elections. And so when I got to Moscow to start this research project in like February of 2012, suddenly everybody's out on the streets. And so I, of course, was like, well, I can't not go to these protests. They're happening all around me. Um, and that, you know, also was having come from this, um, you know, from Occupy Wall Street. And then I, I was a graduate student in Wisconsin. So we had this massive uprising in 20, 2011. So it's sort of this like, when you come from this, I guess, sort of generational atmosphere of protest and you see these people out on the streets, you're sort of like, okay, this is interesting. Is it familiar? Is it something different? Um, so I was sort of looking at women's activism specifically and then sort of got sucked into these protests. And um, I was really surprised when I started going to um, not just the general uh, anti-Putin protests that, I mean, so let me backtrack, at the big anti-Putin sort of for fair elections protests, I was surprised to see how rich they were, how diverse they were in terms of the kinds of groups who were there. And so I was running into um, not just feminist protesters there, but also these um, radical leftists and even LGBT protesters. Um, and they started inviting me to their own other things. So I was going to both these sort of the massive election rallies that were happening and then also more um, focused. So there was in, on March 8th, there was a big International Women's Day um, rally, or I should say relatively big. Um, and so I sort of just got drawn into this protest scene. And so that got me really interested in sort of not just the women's activism side, but how there were these groups coming together both the feminist activists and these LGBT activists, and there were often these radical leftists sort of circling around depending on the topic of the event. Um, and so I got sort of interested not to in looking at sort of more broadly these coalition politics and how these different groups were working together um, or sometimes against each other. And so that sort of shifted the, the topical direction of my research. Um, but then getting back more to the, the big questions, um, those actually ended up remaining surprisingly similar. So, um, you know, again, I was really interested in sort of what's happening with um, the politics of reproduction and the family in Russia, which of course is very much um, tied up in questions about LGBTQ people. Um, and then also the sort of bigger, bigger, broader question about politics. So there's a ton of research and a ton of discussion about how, um, in sort of under the Soviet Union and then in, in post-Soviet um, countries that people tend to be very depoliticized. Um, there's a sort of sense that politics is this corrupt, dirty, unreal kind of thing that those people get involved in and real life is outside of all of that political stuff. And so people sort of tend to focus on what's happening in their personal lives and that's sort of where the sort of authentic real life is happening. 
Um, and so there's this interesting question to me about, you know, when you're talking about a society where by and large people are sort of very depoliticized, what does it take for someone to become a political activist? Um, you know, how and why do people get involved in that kind of thing um, in, a, in a place where it's not really the norm? And, and yeah, so that was sort of one of my core questions. Yeah, I mean, this is a really interesting question because, you know, there's there's a lot of hand-wringing, of course, in kind of public discussion about Russia. You know, what is it going to take for, you know, the population to become more politicized or politically engaged or protests and things like this? And it usually falls along you know, basic assumptions. And and one of them, and, and this goes to directly something that you saw that being in the United States and being outside of Russia and looking at those protests through media, we didn't see. And that is the the diversity of those protests. Um, you know, they were given in the a lot of the media coverage, they were given these assumptions about, you know, the middle class or, um, you know, the the creative class or something like this, and that it was a mostly liberal minded uh, protest, you know, politically liberal, uh, even in, in not in liberal sense in the Russian context, but more liberal in, say, American context. So uh, talk a bit about that diversity and and where do leftists position themselves within this broader opposition movement? Yeah, that's a really good question. So I, yeah, I definitely agree with you. And this is, you know, sort of something that I've written about a bit also that, that these, you know, there's the media portrayal of the fair elections protests or anti-Putin protests as sort of being number one about right, Putin, right? right? Um, and number two is sort of dominated by these kind of self-proclaimed leader figures um, like Navalny, but also some of the you know um, intelligentsia figures um, who've been really really prominent leaders of the movement. And so there's you know in the first place kind of this question of when someone gets up on stage and sort of presents themselves as a leader, to what extent are they actually leading anything? You know, what, or are they sort of <laughs> kind of kind of surfing on top of this wave in a certain sense? Um, but certainly the the portrayal of the protest by and large as kind of being mostly about elections and about Putin was, I think, not far from complete, but it wasn't inaccurate. Um, so at the really massive protests, certainly the, you know, the bulk of the signs I saw and when, you know, when I would talk to people about why they were there, it was pretty common for them to say, well, this is about the elections, this is about Putin, this is about corruption, um, these kinds of, of big picture things that are in, you know, we sort of sort of glosses, sort of being not not political in the sense that they don't have a, a particular policy agenda or something other than we need different people in this government. Um, and so, you know, and some of the things that were to me kind of telling about sort of the dynamic of that bigger crowd is that, you know, when um, there was a rally with a big stage and someone was giving a speech, people would often try to chant slogans. Um, and the only ones that the crowds ever really picked up were Russia um, Putina. Um, and, and that's basically it, right? That's the only one that sort of got traction. Um, exactly. And so that, that, that definitely is a, a, or at least was, it was a really, um, real dynamic, but at the same time, um, you know, I was really looking at these protests as kind of events or spaces and asking what was happening there. And from that perspective, you see sort of, well, there's this crowd of people and for, um, the, leftist groups and also a lot of the LGBT rights and feminist groups, for them, it was sort of like, hey, there's this audience. <laughs> and so, um, you know, these are these are people who don't necessarily, um, well, in, in most countries, and certainly in Russia, don't have a lot of access to 
mass media that gets a gets a wide audience, you know, they're not really getting um, time on the, the nightly news or anything. And so here they actually finally get to meet and talk to a bunch of their um, neighbors and fellow citizens and, and sort of bring their own messages out to the crowd. And so that's sort of how they really related to these mass protests is sort of, um, you know, there are suddenly all these people on the streets. This is a great opportunity for us to meet them and do outreach and try to recruit new people and, and get our messages out. You know, one of the the, the puzzling things for many people um, is is trying to understand the political spectrum in Russia because you know the American political spectrum doesn't work very well in this sense. Um, so, talk about. You know, it, Russia has a long history of leftist politics, um, and that leftist politics has has transformed in in many ways since the collapse of the Soviet Union. So much so that you can speak of, you know, you, it's hard to categorize, say, the Communist Party of the Russian Federation as left in kind of a Western European or American sense. So, and one of the things you speak about is the Russian New Left. So, talk about what the Russian new left is and, and how does it align on the political spectrum there? What you're talking about is something that, that definitely struck me that as I started spending time with these activists that, um, you know, the, the categories I had sort of brought in sort of implicitly in my head were not working. Um, and that's common, I think, to all of us. And it's certainly something that, that is common to anthropology um, that we, you know, make a strong and, and really concerted effort to sort of recognize our own categories and be aware of the fact that they probably won't really help us understand the things that we're coming to see. And so, you know, we have this really jargony term, um, emic, that um, we, we're always looking for the, the emic categories, the, the um, ideas and categories that people themselves are using to make sense of their own social lives. Um, and so I, you know, immediately sort of started saying, okay, what, what are the, you know, the people I'm talking to, what categories are they using? And then, you know, once you start taking notes on that, then you think about how do they fit together? What, you know, what do they, how can I interpret this? What does it mean to me? And what I ended up coming to in my own head anyway, was thinking about, um, thinking about politics as sort of maybe more of a, a two-dimensional space. I mean, you could obviously add more dimensions depending on how, how deep into the math you want to go. Um, but um, so, so people would be saying, you know, this is a leftist thing, this is a right thing, this is a liberal thing, and often talking about how the leftists were opposed to the liberals. And so, of course, to an American, you're sort of like, hmm, that's interesting. Um, and then there is this whole other set of issues around nationalism. And there were also groups who, um, so I was, I was spending the most time with the leftists who were um, kind of most sympathetic to feminist issues and, and, and LGBT issues. And they also had quite a lot of disputes with other leftist groups who they characterized as nationalist. Yeah. And so I was sort of trying to figure out like what's happening in this space. You've got the left versus the right, but you also have the left versus the left right who are the nationalists. Um, and so the way I've sort of taken to thinking of, about it is that you have this sort of um, more or less conventional like economic spectrum between sort of the left and the liberal sort of classical liberalism, right? You have kind of, um, classical liberalism valuing individual rights and the free market and all these kinds of things. So you might think about it almost as like libertarianism or something like that in the United States. Um, and then the left being in some sense for um, public or socialized safety nets, or um, you go sort of further over to um, collective control over the means of production, that kind of thing. Um, and over here, you also found, um, you know, I found that there were some um, 
small but but very intense and, and vocal um, kind of anarcho-communists who are sort of very anti-government but but um, wanted um, sort of to organize things on, on some kind of collective basis and so they were all into very like DIY activities and that kind of thing. Um, so that's kind of what you have the sort of economic spectrum and then you also have this kind of cultural spectrum um, and that's sort of where the the nationalism sort of came in where you had on the one hand um, people who were very attracted to the sort of resurgent ethnic Russian national idea that Russia should be a great country, that we needed to rebuild um, so-called traditional values and reclaim the greatness of the country. And then they very much thought of themselves as opposed to things like international human rights and feminism and LGBT rights, um, and also very much opposed to the West um, and the United States. And so there was a sort of like, polarization around those sorts of ideas um, that, you know, as I'm talking about it, it's probably quite clear that, that as soon as you, like, you have one group of people positioning themselves as the defenders of traditional um, values and Russian identity, and they consider themselves opposed to gay people and the United States and, um, you know, globalism and that kind of stuff, um, then even if LGBT people in Russia think of themselves as Russian and are Russian, um, they're still in this group being seen as some kind of external enemy who's associated with all this foreign stuff. Yeah. So how do, so how do LGBTQ activists navigate themselves in this kind of spectrum within the left? It's tricky. It's very tricky. There's a lot of, I mean, this was one of the things that caught my attention um, over and over again. And I ended up um, spending quite a lot of time thinking about was, um, you know, on the one hand for, for the kind of very nascent LGBT rights movement, um, the mass protests were really helpful because they sort of at the same time that they were being kind of demonized and scapegoated by the government and by these sort of traditional values activists and, um, the Orthodox Church and, and, and some of these other political actors, um, they were able to go out to these massive protests and, you know, look people in the eye and say, I'm a citizen just like you. I also am upset about these elections. I also am upset about the corruption. I also am upset about the cost of living going, being so high. Um, and so they had, a, a you know, at least on a sort of person to person level, a lot of success at um, sort of making themselves part of this public. Um, sort of in opposition to that other narrative that there are some kind of, you know, dangerous foreign enemy. But um, at the same time, you know, there was all this um, and, and still continues to be a lot of this scapegoating and demonization and sort of stirring up of homophobia and anti-gay sentiment. And that certainly was something that caused a lot of schisms in the left too. Um, because as I mentioned, some of the left groups sort of were maybe oriented against capitalism but not necessarily on board with the sort of uh, human rights cultural project. Um, and, and certain aspects of that, I mean, you see that, <laughs> so this is all sort of becoming uh, interesting because I feel like some of these issues have now sort of become more um, visible in, in the United States also. So maybe we also need a sort of multidimensional political uh, landscape view. Um, but there's a you know, particular aspect of this in the former Soviet Union that it is the case that, that people tend to see capitalism itself as kind of a, an importation from the West. And so, you know, when you have anti-capitalism in the West, it's sort of not seen as a question of national identity. Um, 
but because sort of the importation of the market economy and shock therapy and all this stuff is sort of associated with you know the West, with the United States, with Harvard economists, you know, we sort of hear these kinds of things. Um, so then to some extent, there is this room for um, leftists to also see themselves as opposed to not just capitalism, but to Western capitalism. The way you're speaking about these protests, um, what comes to mind is the notion of visibility, right? So for leftists and for LGBTQ people, the fact that you have this mass crowd, you can essentially say, you know, we're here and, and this is who I am and, and connect with a broader spectrum of people where uh, in, in normal daily life, it's much more difficult to access um, these, these types of diverse crowds. And, and this, I think, relates to something you wrote recently in a, an article in Anthropology Today, where you begin the article by addressing the notion of um, the failure of protest. And you write something really interesting, and I, I want you to talk about it, is that you, you, you say, the trouble with the narrative of failed protest is that it begins with a faulty assumption that producing policy change is the only function of protest or political activism. So it, explain what you mean by this, because I think this is a really important notion to, to consider, especially since so much of the talk of protest, and, and I'm guilty of this as well, is this more instrumental idea that you protest and something should happen, something should change as a result for it to be considered a success. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and this is something that I, you know, had personally been, been thinking about for a while, you know, was following I mean, from Occupy Wall Street. Um, and also at the time I was doing my research, Black Lives Matter was sort of really getting going as a movement. And so there was all this, you know, sort of different, different, different kinds of protests in the air. And a lot of the, not just media coverage, but also just everyday conversations about these things would sort of, once the immediate public presence in the streets sort of um, died down, people would immediately start saying like, oh, well, that was a waste of time. What happened? You know, what did we get out of this? Um, or what did they get out of this? And and that, you know, again, as an anthropologist, I'm always sort of interested in like, not, not just what do we expect things to be about, but what's actually happening? And so, the question of whether a protest is successful, like first you have to stop and ask like, well, how are you defining success? And then to do that, it sort of gets you back into this very different question of, well, what's a protest for? What is, what is happening at a protest and what is it actually doing? And certainly there are a lot of protests that are aimed at policy change or at political change. Um, I know you, you had um, Emily on a couple of weeks ago talking about the Maidan protests and, you know, sort of there it was uh, like, well, I think the, the, the purpose maybe shifted a bit over time, but, but certainly there was this very clear outcome of a, you know, a change in um, government. And so we see sort of those protests and think that, that that kind of thing must be the aim of all protests. And, and there certainly are often sort of explicit themes, um, you know, protest for fair elections ostensibly is trying to push for better election practices um, or a protest for, um, um, you know, improving school funding or um, a protest against pulling down this apartment building to build expensive uh, condos for rich people. Like these sort of seem like they have very clear policy um, um, goals. And so if that, that goal doesn't happen, it seems like that was, that was not successful. Um, but as I talked to people about protests and sort of observed what was happening at protests, there, there was sort of all other, a lot of other kinds of things happening. So um, for starters, it's, it's kind of often fun to go to a protest. 
<laughs> there, I mean, some of them are, you know, especially if you're going to several a week over time, like you sort of <laughs> then come to see that some, some are more interesting than others. Um, but, you know, there's, it's a, sort of an atmosphere, right? You come out and there are people and it's kind of exciting and there, you know, there are all these plans you have to make ahead of time and you have to prepare signs and think of funny slogans and, and you get out there and your friends are there. Um, and so there's this whole like social atmosphere around, uh, around the protests. And then as I was talking to people and sort of asking them to recount how they got involved in um, activism or in going to protests, they would sort of tell these narratives about, um, you know, I never used to be interested in this kind of thing, but then my friend asked me to go and then I sort of became aware that there was all of this stuff that was bothering me and that I could try to do something about it. Um, and so as I was sort of looking over people's um, descriptions of why they were going to protests and sort of how they started getting involved in this stuff, it became clear to me that one of the things that was happening at these protest events was that people were sort of developing a new sort of sense of themselves and who they were and what they were capable of doing. And so I came to the conclusion, or at least to making the argument that one of the things happening at protests is um, it's really a response to this depoliticization that, you know, sort of if, if the bulk of people sort of feel like it, this is a waste of time doing politics, why get involved with anything? You can't change anything. It's pointless. One of the things happening at protests is people are sort of reshaping that part of themselves that feels hopeless <laughs> and are coming to sort of coming to the feeling and the sense that they do have some power and they can try to change something and it is worth doing. And so even if an individual protest doesn't achieve a particular change in government or change in law or something, it's having this effect on people's own senses of themselves um, and that they're, they're sort of feeling that they have a capacity to actually do something in the world. Yeah, this goes to another thing that you, you talked about as well, and that is this, I mean, essentially, it is a kind of subjective transformation of sorts where you know, going to protests is one kind of sense of self, but you develop or some people develop a sense of becoming an activist or being a social activist. How did your interlocutors understand themselves as as activists as opposed to, say, someone who just goes to protests? Yeah, that's that's a good question. And there's another question that I, I hadn't realized I needed to ask until I started going to protests. And so I would, I would go out to a rally and, um, you know, catch up with the people I already knew, but also, you know, interact with new, new people I hadn't met before. And I would, I would, at the very beginning of my research, I would go up to people at the protest, you know, someone holding a sign or, you know, participating in a chant or something like that and say, how long have you been an activist? Um, and they would, they would like, the vast majority of them would immediately like, oh, I'm, I'm definitely not, no, I'm not an activist. I, I don't do politics at all. I'm not involved in politics. And so that, uh, you know, of course, like caught, caught my attention, like, wait, wait, to me, this looks like politics. To me, this looks like activism. But you are saying it is definitely not. Activism has nothing to do with politics. Well, that's interesting. Um, so then I, you know, added to my my interview protocol. Like, do you think of yourself as an activist? What does that mean to you? Um, and and that got a, a very different set of responses. Um, and it had to do with this sort of um, the way that I mean, it's really about the way that people see their activities, right? Because from the outside, it it might all look the same, you know, the, the people who consider themselves activists are going through the same sort of public activities in terms of going out to an event and holding up a sign or um, participating in a lecture series or um, sometimes sometimes it's even very small things, talking with their neighbors is the kind of activism, right? Um, but it's really about sort of people 
coming to see their actions as part of a deliberate effort to change society as a whole in some way. So beyond one issue, um, it's not just about my apartment building, it's about the whole city, um, that kind of thing. Let's talk more about the LGBTQ activists because, um, you know, as we know, and you've already mentioned, there is state-sponsored homophobia in Russia and particularly this, you know, gay propaganda law. Um, and there's a lot of questions, you know, how pervasive this is and, and, and how to how do LGBTQ activists address this issue? So what kinds of forms of activism and resistance uh, do LGBTQ activists take in regard to this kind of state-sponsored homophobia? There was a really wide range. So some of it was very public-facing and sort of framed really in, in or, orientation to the state. Um, so there was one, um, there was one really great activist who organized um, these um, like kiss-in events around public courts. Um, it just was, I think got a bit of media coverage. Um, and that I think was sort of I just personally really like just kind of a lovely statement of like, we're going to protest by showing love. Um, so it's very, to me, very heartwarming. Um, and so there was some, you know, and, and, you know, holding up signs at protests about the, um, about the law and how wrong it was. Um, but sort of the, the thing that, that seemed to take up in some ways the most time for, um, for a lot of these activists, at least at the, at the time I was there, because there, there was all this sort of mass, um, mass opposition protest happening, um, they often spent a lot of time dealing with their fellow protesters. So what frequently would happen is there would be some protest, an election protest or um, an anti-fascist protest uh, or, um, you know, a remembrance of, of journalists who've been killed or something, you know, any, any sort of like large mass event like this. And the LGBT activists would bring out a rainbow flag or bring up a poster that had some kind of LGBT related theme on it and other protesters would attack them. Um, so there would be this sort of almost, almost ritual that, you know, the, the rainbow flag would come out and immediately a crowd would gather around and hands would reach up and rip the flag away and, and um, try to kick these people out. Um, and so a lot of their protest, uh, the way that one of the activists put it was we're fighting for the right to fight that they sort of had to first before they could even address the sort of like big picture state legal situation, they had to fight their own fellow protesters for the right just to be there publicly. And so they had a, a number of different tactics for this. I mean, one was just this sort of re refusing to follow this sort of implicit rule that they shouldn't be there, right? So insisting on being there um, and not just coming out, but insisting on being there really publicly with the flag so that people knew they were there. Um, and that a number of people thought was very important, particularly because of the way that there, there was all this um, sort of state and state adjacent scapegoating of the LGBT people. It was really important to them to show that they were there with everybody else, that they weren't, um, you know, just some monster in the corner, that they were, they were fellow citizens, fellow leftists, um, fellow anti-fascists, everything uh, along those lines. Um, so that was sort of what was happening on, on, the, on the protest scenes. Um, and, and to some extent, that also meant trying to get involved in the planning committees for these events so that they could be there to say, hey, you know, when we're setting the rules for what people can bring to this protest, we need to be able to bring rainbow flags. And we're going to fight for that right so that people know we're there. Um, but there were also a lot of efforts to focus on, um, you know, persuasion and education and culture change. So 
they would organize um, artistic events and movie nights and lectures and debates um, to sort of engage um, a broader swath of the left and um, the more liberal opposition in um, addressing LGBT issues and sort of getting to know what the issues were and understand why they mattered. Um, and then on a sort of personal level, there's also kind of, you know, in this, you know, if, if you're, um, it has an effect on your subjectivity, right? If you're in an atmosphere of, of repression and violence. And so um, they were also organizing self-help groups and psychological trainings and even self-defense trainings um, to sort of help them be able to just survive this atmosphere. Do you get a sense of their have LGBTQ Russian LGBTQ activists had any success in in gaining visibility within the broader, say, opposition protest movement in Russia? That's a tricky question. So, at the toward the end of my research period in 2013, I you know I was asking people this whether whether there had been some successes, um, and people did. You know, when I interviewed activists, they would point to certain things um, and sometimes small things. So um, one person mentioned that, you know, a, a success had been after a period of his group going out to these big opposition protests, um, people would start to come up to him and want to take pictures with him. And like just that to him seemed like a, a kind of success that that people who weren't particularly engaged on, on you know, LGBT rights issues. They weren't activists, but they like wanted to be there with him. And that was kind of a big thing. Um, there were other some sort of relatively um, small successes of like having a major event where nobody attacked the person holding the rainbow flag. <laughs> like that's, that's kind of a win. Um, and then there were a couple of other um, anecdotes people had about um, let me see, there was, there were a couple of massive protests that I um, wasn't present for, um, the, um, um, the big Bolotnaya protest where, where a bunch of people got arrested. Um, there, uh, several people had an anecdote there that, that the LGBT, um, group had been marching and was attacked by, um, some nationalists and, um, they, they, they had all noticed that, that other people marching around them who weren't part of their, their group, um, actually stood up and defended them against these nationalists. And so there were sort of little moments like that for people that, that felt like they were successes and that felt like there might be some, some potential to get more people on their side and sort of seeing that, that they needed to be seen as part of this broader public and, you know, people just like you, um, who deserve the same treatment and the same rights and are, you know, have the same goals as you. Um, but of course, the bigger picture is it's not it's not a good situation to say the least. Um, and there have been a couple of people, um, you know, as in preparation for this interview, I was sort of looking back through some of my research notes and um, you know dissertation chapters and, and that kind of thing. And I, I sort of found several names of people who I'd interviewed there who are no longer in Russia. Um, you know, people who've tried to go away to school in Europe. Um, There's one um, young woman who was arrested and then um, was about to be charged with um, a felony assaulting a police officer and she fled the country. Um, so there's some stories like that too that are just pretty, pretty bad. Now, now one of the, the other issues, and, and you, you, you mentioned this early on in our conversation, and that is, you know, one of the things that, that plague leftist groups, and it seems to plague them pretty much everywhere, and that is the potential 
potential for splits and and finding means of solidarity with other potential allies, right? And you mentioned this in the sense of the leftists against the liberals, leftists against leftists, and anyone who's familiar familiar with the history of left movements, you know, in the last century can knows the the tendency to kind of fracture into smaller and smaller, almost cult like uh, groups, and you know. This issue of of left solidarity with the wider kind of opposition in Russia is definitely something that's being debated today and uh, particularly around the issue of, you know, what to do about Alexei Navalny. Like, how much do we, you know, as a leftist, do we have solidarity with him, even though we disagree with a lot of his positions? How much do we use the this chance of visibility to connect with, you know, other uh, members of society, things like this? So... How did uh, how did some of your interlocutors navigate this kind of sea of of camaraderie and solidarity? And do you have any indication of where LGBTQ activists position themselves today, vis a vis you know the the opposition as it's forming now in in two thousand seventeen? Yeah, there's um, schism is a word that has come up a lot in my. And my research, and, and I mean, people even joked about it. You know, there was, I have a couple of um, like internet meme kind of um, images that I I'd saved about uh, about the concept of Raskol um, in the left, uh, which is, yeah. And so I guess there, there are a couple of things about that. I mean, in the first place, um, you know, again, I'm always interested in sort of what the, what the function of everything is. And so I think you know, there's a, a tendency to assume that any kind of split is bad and any kind of conflict is bad. Um, and that's something that, that comes up not just in Russia, not just on the left, but sort of all across. Pro- I mean, you sort of see this happening with the, the um, NFL take a knee protest, right? It's sort of like, ah, oh, like people are upset, you should stop doing this. Um, and so, you know, to a certain extent, I, I think I was, I was interested in um, sort of what people were getting out of these schisms. You know, the schism sort of comes because someone insists on continuing to do something that other people don't agree with, whatever it is. Um, and so I think in, in some cases, that's not necessarily a bad thing. And so, you know, where it comes to LGBT rights, you know, they, they really were causing friction every time they brought the flag out and every time they said, like, no, 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 you can't leave us out of this, you can't leave LGBT issues out of this, like, we have to be part of this thing. Um, and there were schisms over that. And, you know... Yeah. And they're necessary. I mean, they're necessary in the sense of not only this kind of proclamation like, hey, we're here, you can't ignore us, but also I think informing, you know, better honing what, say, an LGBTQ activist stands for. Yeah, yeah. Um, but also, you know, it is at the same time true that, you know, sort of the more people are fractured and split, the less kind of collective power they have. Um, and this is something that, that, seem to happen really routinely around um, issues of kind of nationalism and imperialism also. Um, and so I had a number of, I'd heard a number of stories about um, schisms that had happened in 2008 with the, you know, the war with Georgia um, that, that really split the left because you, you know, again, have these sort of pieces of the Russian left that are kind of on board with the, the national project that, that, you know, Russia should be great, that we need to, um, and they sometimes would sort of frame it as we need to oppose Western imperialism, right, and, and oppose the United States. And that, you know, is, it's a complicated issue. <laughs> um, but, um, but, but then the sort of anti-nationalist leftists would 
look at that and say like, well, I mean, it's obviously true that the United States has overweening power in this way and that way, but also Russia is an imperial power and like is, you know, which should not be seizing territory from Ukraine and should not be seizing territory from Georgia. Um, and so that was, a, I think, a frequent cause of splits and, and, you know, maybe also helps illustrate sort of why it's um, perhaps an effective strategy for the Putin government to, to hit on these issues because it, it really does divide people. Um, but then this gets to be a problem with someone like Navalny, who, you know, does seem to be quite open to using kind of national identity rhetoric to, to help build his support. And that poses problems to people who either um, are anti-nationalist um, or who, like LGBT people, have been sort of caught up in, you know, in that sort of the, the current Russian official nationalism is sort of predicated on treating them as outside foreign enemies that we need to unite against. And so it's, I don't know if there's a way to square that, right? If, if you um, sort of are a, me- a member of a social group who is sort of the enemy of this national project, you can't really be on the side of the person who's trying to use that national project to gain power. So how so how are they na- navigating it? Because you know, on the one hand, there there is definitely that, but on the other hand, you know, there's also costs with sitting on the sidelines as well. Yeah, and so there, um, I I should say that my um, because of the the sort of project design I had, I didn't end up talking to a lot of people who were on the sidelines, as I was sort of mostly um, mostly researching and working with people who were kind of active in one one way or another. Um, but for those people, they, um, they, I mean, they, they agreed that, that, that sort of things were urgent enough that you couldn't sit on the sidelines. Um, and so they definitely, I mean, there was no talk of like, we need to boycott this event because Navalny's too bad. Um, it was much more like we need to go out to this so that we can tell people that they're wrong <laughs> and that, that we actually have to build a better project than this. Um, and so the way that people described it was sort of that, um, you know, they had this, what, what to me seemed a, a kind of pretty realistic take that they didn't know, you know, is there sort of this idea that, that we don't know how long Putin's going to be in power, you know, he could die tomorrow, he could be in another 20 years, there's no way of knowing. Um, and we also don't know who's going to come next. And it's, you know, it's not going to be one of us probably. And so they, what they sort of, a lot of people sort of looked at their goal, not as getting Putin out of power and getting somebody good into power, they sort of really thought of their goal as working on these crowds so that whoever came to power next would be more sympathetic to their issues and to be more accepting. And so it's sort of like pushing this kind of culture change within the opposition movement in hopes that whatever the next wave was would be better. This is kind of my impression as well in the sense of like on this question of what to do. And that is, you know, you know, Russia doesn't, and I've said this before in a variety of forms, but, you know, Russia doesn't need another, like, guy on a horse. They need to, there needs to be a, a broader kind of democratization of society. And I think this is, these spaces of protest really open up, and, and not just a mass protest, but all of these kind of local protests that are going on all the time and throughout Russia, they really do provide these opportunities to, you know, to show people that, we can build solidarity. We can um, try to put pressure for change in our own communities, or we can just realize that you know we're not alone out there. Yeah, yeah. Um, and one one example that I, I didn't bring up earlier, but um, the um, one of the LGBT groups in Moscow, um, 
had, uh, they, they organized these, uh, they call them uh, rainbow Subotniks. Um, and so they have sort of, yeah, you know, sort of on the, on the Soviet model. Um, and the idea was, you know, we're going to show that we're like good neighbors, you know, we're going to go out and um, clean up a park and collect trash and take care of our environment. And it'll be, you know, a fun afternoon for all of us and sort of community building, but also to show that, um, that we're, we're good people and, and, and good members of this community that we're contributing. And finally, I ask this of all my guests who are working on, you know, left-wing movements in, in the former Soviet Union, and that is, how do uh, Russian LGBTQ activists and Russian radical leftists, how do they see themselves in terms of this broader kind of global upsurge in the last several years of the left? Um, how do they position themselves within it? And, and how do you see themselves within it? Um, they, I would say they, they definitely saw themselves as part of um, global movements. You know, my, um, let me see, while I was in, I'm trying to get the year right here. While I was in Russia, um, Tammy Baldwin, the um, senator from Wisconsin, who's a, the first openly lesbian senator, um, was elected. And that was super, super, super exciting for, you know, they were sort of sharing the news across um, social media um, that, that, hey, look what happened in the United States, you know, a, a, a gay person was elected. Um, and likewise, the leftists were very excited when Shama Sawant um, was elected to, the, I think, the city council in Seattle. Um, and so, you know, similarly, when, when things were happening in Europe that, that were sort of on their agenda, they sort of saw that as news that was important to them, right? It wasn't just some interesting thing that happened in some other country, but it was like, this is part of what's happening around the world that really matters to us, that sort of shows us what, what's possible. Um, and so they definitely, um, on a sort of an intellectual level, um, thought of themselves as, as connected to these international movements. Um, and they also sort of saw me that way, right? That I had sort of arrived from... The United States, um, and you know, I have been interested in feminism and LGBT rights issues for a long time, and so they, in some ways, you know, I was a researcher, um, but they also often treated me as kind of a fellow activist, um, and that was, I mean, that was interesting to me because there's often this, um, you know, in um, any kind of research, and certainly in anthropology, we do a lot of um, correctly do a lot of hand wringing about sort of the power dynamic of the the researcher and the researched, um, and so I was sort of expecting to people to feel a little bit more like, oh, what are you doing? Like coming all the way over here and like stealing our stories to build your career or something. Um, but nobody really felt that way because they sort of saw me as, as kind of a comrade in a lot of ways. Um, yeah. And so that was, that was kind of interesting. Um, more concretely, um, you know, people who were able to were part of um, international networks, um, both, you know, online, you know, the internet's made this much easier. Um, but also, you know, there were a number of people I, um, interviewed and, and worked with who um, had traveled to different parts of Europe to participate in conferences um, or had been in other, um, other countries, um, you know, work, working on activist networking kinds of things. Um, there was also um, a bit of exchange happening, um, not just in Eastern European countries that were sort of formerly in the Soviet sphere um, and, and Western Europe, but also to some extent in Central Asia. Um, so a number of the leftists in Moscow were quite interested in what was happening, um, in, um, there, there were a lot of, um, labor rights problems in, in, in Kazakhstan, for example. Yeah. Um, so they, you know, they had a, um, a rally, um, on the anniversary of the, the Jano Zen massacre. 
Um, so there's sort of a lot of ways that they, they connected their work to what they really thought of as a global movement, um, and also sometimes in, in concrete ways in terms of um, activists who um, were able to go from place to place and actually meet and network um, with people from, from other countries. That was Jessica Mason, a Mellon ACLS public fellow and federal policy analyst at the National Partnership for Women and Families, and a fellow in the Department of Anthropology at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. She's the author of Wake Up Russia, Political Activism and the Reanimation of Agency, published in the October 2016 issue of Anthropology Today. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian and East European Studies at the University of Pittsburgh, and listeners like you. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review, or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB podcast comes cheap, but it's not free to make. You can help support it by joining the table of ranks at seansrussiablog.org. A big thank you to all my contributors and patrons. You can find past shows on iTunes and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from seansrussiablog.org as well. Until next time, bye.